So, you know, diversity on its own, just looking at the demographics or the numbers of kind of bums you have in chairs and how diverse they are. Um, if people don't feel like they belong, like Alicia said, you won't experience those amazing benefits, right? It's it's from a culture of inclusion that you get those um, incredible kind of business case benefits. Welcome to Cross Pollination. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This week's episode is about diversity, equity, inclusion, and innovation, as well as the pandemic, and it includes a chat with Marcy and Alicia, hosts of the Exclusion Podcast. We've been chatting about chatting for some time, as you'll hear. Marcy and Alicia are podcasters and also experts who work in the EDI area, and we have a mutual interest in how diversity and inclusion and equity work in workplaces, organizations, and in innovation. This episode was recorded a few months back, and it'll be followed by more focusing on different aspects of a very large topic that's pretty important. In a very broad sense, it's gained more prominence now in light of discussions raised through the Black Lives Matter and Indigenous movements, but it's hardly new. It's also one of the key reasons behind this podcast, which focuses on people who've combined different fields, talents, and skills to innovate and create new things to do things differently. If you listen to Care Across Pollination much, you'll have heard from people based in about five different countries, and many more women, people of color, people who've immigrated to and from about 15 different countries, and guests speaking on very different areas of expertise in English as their second, third, or even fourth language. Sometimes they're well-recognized and well-established in their fields, other times they're not yet well-known, and sometimes they're less often heard from or cited as experts in business innovation than they should be, although they're all doing interesting, original, substantive, and creative things. That perspective isn't by accident. It's a reflection of my own experience and my experience working in different countries and in different fields. Innovation might take off and thrive in the presence of some key ingredients, but you'll also find it and creativity everywhere and in everyone around the world, sometimes despite structures and systems that don't support it. It's also not by any means the full extent of diversity, and in the coming season, the lineup will expand again to more guests who are doing interesting original work. In this episode, you'll hear more on what that's all about and why it's important that we don't miss out. You can find a longer and more extended version of this discussion in Exclusion Podcast list of episodes. Marcy and Alicia kick things off with an introduction. And as always, in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth, we acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional territories and oral practices of Treaty 7 region in Southern Alberta and Region 3 Métis Nation. We acknowledge all nations, Indigenous and non, who live, work, and play on these lands, and to all who assist in their stewardship for generations to come. And uh, so just to kind of share a little bit about exclusion for your listeners, um, exclusion is a podcast that Alicia and I co-host, and we explore all things equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. So we want to share positive stories and examples with our listeners of successful EDI initiatives. Um, So that's equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, And we want to share these so that you can build, so that our listeners can build upon this positive momentum and apply the learnings to their own world and their own workplaces. Because we all hear when things go horribly wrong at companies. So for example, the Greta stickers at Excite Energy Services, or we hear often in the news about rampant sexual harassment or poor, poor board representation and diversity, but we rarely hear what works well. Um, so it's really hard to, to build upon that and apply that to your own world. So that's what we aim to do. And we always include tangible tools and tips and key actionable takeaways at the end of our episodes for our listeners to um, be able to implement right away. 
And for myself, uh, Marcy, um, I came from the international human rights field working. I worked at the UN Human Rights Council um, for various international NGOs, um, including Human Rights Watch, and then also the Arthur Morrow Center for Peace and Justice. And then I moved into government, um, and I started working with the federal government and then provincial governments in uh, Ottawa, Edmonton, and then Calgary. Um, my educational background is I have a master's degree from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University in international conflict resolution, um, where I focused on gender mainstreaming and human rights and um, specifically sex trafficking. Um, and I have focused my consulting practice. So I around two years ago, I started Canadian Equality Consulting. Um, and that uh, company focuses on gender equity, diversity, and creating inclusive, happy, and kind of high-performing workplaces that uh, spark creativity and belonging in their employees and in all sectors. So, um, And I won a Premier's Award of Excellence for my work in advancing gender equality in Alberta and was recently recognized by UN Women as a She Innovator. So um, so I love the international human rights field and, uh, and gender mainstreaming. All right. And my name is Alicia and I'm the other co-host. And what I really love about us chatting with you is that um, if you want to talk about pivoting, you have three of us right <laughs> here that are very much have done that within their careers. And I know that that's very similar to a lot of women who, um, you know, our careers are more jungle gyms versus ladders, right? Where there's quite often a side step or um, lateral move in, instead of an upward move, for example. And so my background is I started as an exploration geoscientist within the resource sector. And um, I did that for 15 years. I worked all over Canada. I worked internationally. I had a really great uh, opportunity to, to get to know the geoscience of, of our country, which was quite interesting. But then about um, six years ago, I pivoted and I went back to school and I received a master's degree in human geography with a specific focus on equity, diversity, inclusion, on corporate culture. And I, I find that um, when you're talking about innovation and... Um, entrepreneurship, there can very much be different ways to describe that. And, it, and it's not just in the technology that we create, which I do think is very important. It's something that I definitely advocate for as a STEM professional, but also an innovative thought. And that can include in, uh, having equity, diversity, inclusion within in corporate cultures. And I find that the traditional style of, of corporate culture can limit us in our progression and in our innovative um, potential. So um, that's where I focus on quite a bit. Uh, I have, so as I mentioned, I have my master's degree. And then additionally, I am a Canadian certified inclusion professional from the Canadian Center of Diversity and Inclusion. And I do quite a lot of volunteer work with the Alberta Women's Science Network and the variety of different groups under our umbrella, including Operation Minerva, where we pair grade eight girls with uh, female STEM professionals in order to uh, encourage the next generation of um, of of innovators and uh, STEM professionals. And I too have won a few awards through the years. My most recent one was the Stars of Alberta Award from the Government of Canada for my work in, in my volunteerism within STEM. So 
though Marcy and I come from different backgrounds, we've definitely had the opportunity to merge in what we do, which has been quite exciting. And so I have a consulting company as well called BR Consulting, and I often will work with Marcy in the work that she does, as well as the podcast, which is exciting. So now that you've met Marcy and Alicia, and you already know me from this podcast, the first question I had for them as people who work in this area on a daily basis is what diversity actually means. When people hear the word, different people often think of different things, and different kinds of diversity come to mind. Here's Marcy on that topic. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for that question. Um, and Alicia and I, in one of our, I think it was our episode, one of our very first exclusion episodes, we talk about cracking the EDI code and we give a bunch of definitions. But, um, but essentially, um, to me, there's kind of two types of diversity. Um, one is kind of demographic-based or identity diversity, which looks at those different um, demographics or identity factors, right? So sex, gender, um, uh, sexual diversity, race, ethnicity, culture, language, geographic location, you name it, um, and it keeps going. And uh, and then the other is what Alicia touched on about innovative thought as well, and, but more in terms of um, diversity of perspectives. And, um, and that includes different life experiences and uh, different opinions and perspectives and thoughts. But that, in my mind, diversity of... Um, diversity of perspectives um, kind of stems from identity diversity. So they kind of impact and influence and overlap each other. And that's where I think kind of that innovative thought comes from, um, as Alicia mentioned. So um, so I think, you know, even looking at um, just demographic-based diversity um, is, a, is a really good first step in order to achieve that. Well, and, and I think this ties into um, there, we can get stuck on diversity. And I think that this is a pitfall that some companies have had is that you can be active in trying to create a diverse workforce. But if, if you do not actually look at your corporate culture and identify if people of different backgrounds can actually feel like they fit in. Uh, so there's a difference between integrating people into your current culture versus allowing them to be included into your culture. So I feel that one of the pitfalls of EDI is we can get stuck on diversity and we just kind of stall there that there's one thing to have a diverse workforce is very different if those people can be who they are, like really who they are as opposed to playing a role. And we see this a lot in the STEM world, for example, where uh, we can bring women into uh, a STEM environment, but if they have to act like their male counterparts or only are going to be accepted if they um, portray those uh, certain features and they can't be themselves if they have to put on an act in order to work. That's exhausting after a while. And you hear about like, you know, the, what was the last straw that broke the camel's back or as, as one of our member Marcy, when we had uh, Leslie Rigg mentioned that uh, it's feathers that, mm -hmm. that pile on each other and that eventually you get a ton of feathers. So uh, a ton is a ton. It doesn't matter if it's feathers or something else. But um, mm. part of equity, diversity, inclusion is to make sure you create a culture where everybody can feel like they can contribute the best of themselves to it as opposed to playing an, a role that isn't them. If you have to leave your work, if you have to leave home in the morning and change who you are in order to go to work, mm -hmm. that's not creating the most innovative thought patterns at your company. Yeah. And, and just to kind of build on that quickly is um, you kind of, you referenced that 
um, how EDI impacts innovation positively, right? And and a lot of the stats that you see talk about diversity, but what they're but what they're really studying is inclusion. So you know, diversity on its own, just looking at the demographics or the numbers of kind of bums you have in chairs and how diverse they are. Um, if people don't feel like they belong, like Alicia said, you won't experience those amazing benefits, right? It's it's from a culture of inclusion that you get those um, incredible kind of business case benefits. What are some of those business case benefits? And what does the business literature have to say on this subject? Well, it says a lot, and there have been a lot of studies on this whole subject. One published in HBR, How Diversity Can Drive Innovation, reported that companies with what the authors called two-dimensional diversity outperformed those that lacked it in capturing market share and new markets. Two-dimensional diversity refers to what Marcy mentioned earlier, inherent traits that vary between humans like gender, race, LGBTQ plus status, and those related to acquired diversity like experiences such as living abroad, working in different markets and different industries, and education. The authors of the study, Hewlett, Marshall, and Sherbin, noted that when companies' leadership had two-dimensional diversity that included at least three inherent and three acquired diverse traits, those leaders were more apt to value the different perspectives generated by employees with two-dimensional diversity and to create an environment where that diversity could serve the company in developing and supporting valuable innovations. That study points both to the value of diversity in all its forms in promoting innovation and to inclusion as a big key in actually valuing that diversity and turning it into an asset that can create value in the company. That's from a business case perspective. Another side of that is a conscious decision to develop and promote company cultures where employees, customers, stakeholders the business serves feel valued and they can be open and belong along with the multiple direct dimensions of who they are. A big part of that inclusion is psychological safety. Yeah, that really speaks to some of the discussion that's happening now, I think, around psychological safety in the workplace as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how that relates to inclusion and people feeling comfortable being there, being themselves, but also uh, comfortable to speak up and maybe disagree in certain aspects, which is one of the critical things for, you know, innovation to really kind of um, to to get benefits from from that diversity of perspectives and opinions and, and people around the table. Well, and that's um, something that's, sorry, I was just going to jump on what you said. That's something that's really changed, actually, I would say, in the last five years. Because um, even <laughs> one of, we've talked about this before. One of my least favorite books is the Lean In book. Because <laughs> the whole concept of that book is you just have to lean in. If you just lean in, just lean in more. Just lean in, just lean in. And, and so many, like marginalized people, women in the workforce will go, how much further do I have to lean in, right? So it's, it's, it's about that difference between putting the onus on the individual to fit as opposed to looking at a more holistic version of a company and realizing, holy, if we don't actually look at this, this could this is cause mental health issues. This can call, cause physical issues. If you can't speak up at a company, it creates a, a, an environment where the, it's unsafe. So that there's just been that switch, I would say, in maybe mm-hmm. the last five years to go from putting it on the individual to make change to putting it on a company to actually make the workplace safe enough so that those, those t- types of things can actually happen where people can speak up. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to add, like Alicia and I are strong advocates for... Um, like there's nothing wrong with you, right? There's nothing wrong with you as a woman or as a racialized person or whatnot. It's, there's something wrong with the way our workplaces are designed and they're not designed for you, right? So, um, that systemic identifying the, those barriers and then, and then knocking those down or mitigating those are what needs to happen. Yeah, there's a lot of structural and systemic stuff around that, um, you know, in addition to the individual things. 
The structural and systemic stuff we mentioned fairly briefly here can be complex and not always obvious. Why things are the way they are and how they're set up in ways that can encourage or discourage inclusion or support exclusion, sometimes by design, but other times without being purposely or consciously designed that way. In workplaces, it can be embedded in everything from the way that job candidates are sourced, evaluated, and hired to the ways that performance is evaluated, the ways that employees engage with each other as set out through the company culture, and the ways that informal networks operate to develop important work relationships and career connections, or the level of service that different customers receive. It can be embedded in the sometimes unconscious assumptions that people make about the traits or the backgrounds they expect someone with credibility and authority in their field or their company to have that can end up overlooking the contributions of people who don't possess those traits or backgrounds in spite of qualifications or performance. It's one part of why well-designed company cultures as well as well-designed internal processes are so important for inclusion. Changing gears a little bit, one question I had from Marcy and Alicia is what they do in their daily work on these topics. Sure. Well, I can, I can start. So um, lately, <laughs> I've been working with a lot of other not-for-profits, and we have been designing uh, various policy ideas and look, taking a gender-based analysis lens at uh, what we could do as a society and uh, corporations, as government, to make sure that after our pandemic, which has very much been putting uh, a big spotlight at some of the um, pitfalls that we have in our society, how can we uh, pivot that to make sure that we include everyone going forward? So um, I recently worked with the YWCA to help design some policy, which they're going to put forward to um, the government. Uh, I've worked with some of our professional organizations, whether it be a PEGA or uh, current, lately it's been uh, the CSPG, which is Canadian Society of Petroleum Geologists. Um, I helped them draft a letter after one of our affiliate groups put out a video that was highly sexist and misogynist against female geoscientists. Uh, it's hard to believe that that's still happening in this day and age, but it yeah. is. So um, it's sad that we have to keep writing these letters and say that some of these thought patterns are unacceptable, but that's what you do to, to go forward. So in light that Marcy and I can't necessarily do some of the work that we do within companies, um, I know I think she's been able to do a bit more of that than I have uh, since the pandemic ended. Uh, I have found ways to keep myself busy uh, influencing in other ways. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. And Alicia and I try to work together as much as we can. Um, but um, so a lot of the work that I do at Canadian Equality Consulting kind of looks like helping and support in terms of recruitment, hiring, and advancement of women or other underrepresented or marginalized populations in the workplace um, in any sector, and but also in terms of building cultures. Um, so building it, that inclusive culture um, where people feel like they belong and where they can thrive. So um, a lot of the work I've been kind of focused on is a lot of the in-person trainings that I do have been put on hold. Um, others, we've been able to pivot and do it online very well. Um, so that's been really positive. Um, other than that, um, yeah, a lot of different kind of workplace assessments like pay equity studies, um, surveying, focus groups, things like that in order to do almost like a gender and diversity audit of a workplace um, and then also drafting kind of action plans, things like that. And, and a lot of the work that I do has been helping kind of private sector um, and even, 
universities or nonprofits meet the new sort of diversity and inclusion requirements that the federal government has placed on different sectors. So, um, so as a, a quick example, um, in response to the passing of Bill C-69, um, sex and gender and other identity um, factor have to be considered in a socioeconomic impact assessment, which is essentially GBA plus, like Alicia kind of mentioned a bit. Um, so, um, yeah, so we want to work with companies in order to help them meet these new requirements that are um, that are really vague and not clear to to them if you're not you know in it on a daily basis. Another question I had from Marcy and Alicia is about whether moving ahead and making progress on EDI is best served by making a business case for it or a moral case. As I mentioned in the intro on this podcast, I've chosen to do both. I know the stories and insights on innovation and creativity that'll be heard will be a lot more insightful, more interesting, and higher quality if they're explored with guests whose identities and ideas are diverse in many different ways. That's the business case. I also believe it's unequivocally the right thing to do because innovation and creativity in business aren't the province of any one particular group of people. And I've observed directly that a lot of talented people with hugely interesting histories and backgrounds in innovation and creativity aren't heard from enough because of systemic inequalities in business and the broader societies where we all live. It's an important question, partly because the business case has been well known for quite some time. But despite that, it's no secret that we're not where we need to be on equality for many groups. This is a really important question, and it's something that every sort of EDI practitioner probably spends a lot of time thinking about and strategizing about on, you know, how can I convince people the importance of EDI to make them actually invest and do something in it, right, or, or commit to it? Um, and the business case, I mean, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I think the majority of people have heard it or understand it a bit, you know, how if you invest in equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, your profitability goes up, uh, your engagement goes up, your corporate reputation increases, um, you know, you can collect better data, you have improved communications, you know, I could go on and on and on, all the benefits of it. Um, and, but what's interesting is the, the kind of premise behind the business case is that you're hoping that by proving or sharing evidence that this helps, um, that people will begin to see the value in it or begin to actually recognize that, hey, equality might be important, right? And, and see the worth in, in diverse people, right? And the value that they bring to the table. Um, and, you know, which isn't ideal, um, but, and what's interesting, so McKinsey did a recent research study also, um, I think it was called the power of parity. We can put it in the resources section of the podcast. Um, but essentially they did a number of interviews across Canada and the U S and they asked companies, you know, what at people in different levels of the company, um, you know, what would make you commit to advancing EDI and the most senior level, um, said, oh, the business case would. The business case does. That's the most compelling for me to do something. Um, middle management kind of said, oh, well, something that streamlines my work and kind of makes it easier. And then um, junior level employees are like, said the, mor the moral imperative or the moral case. So it's interesting that there's that divide. Um, but you know, again, you know, we say the business case has been proven time and time again right? People should be aware of it by now. It's been shared all over the place. Alicia and I talk about it also a lot. Um, and, 
yet there's still more CEOs named John than all female CEOs put together. And there's still poor board representation. Um, and, you know, and then we're told, like Alicia mentioned, that women um, need to just lean in more or you need mentorship or you need sponsorship or if you get a few more years experience, you'll advance or be more assertive um, and uh, or go to this, you know, a woman's brunch and let's all talk about how we can lean in more, things like that, right? But it, but we don't see it actually changing the culture or the environment. Um, yeah, what do you think about that, Alicia? Well, and it's interesting to, to think about when we say about business case versus moral case, um, the assumption would be that the moral case is enough, that equity is in that we need equity in society in order for everyone to participate that our long-term goal is equality to even understand the difference of those definitions and i would say that before i started working with marcy i did a whole masters and the word equality was actually never mentioned in a lot of the literature that i was looking at because the the uh, the definition was wrong and people didn't like the use of using it um I know even this year, my daughter, she's, she's learning about the justice system in, in her grade six class here in, in Calgary. And I had to send information to the teachers because they had the definition of equality wrong. <laughs> equality is not equal treatment. Equality is what we strive for. So to know that we don't even have the definitions right and to think that uh, we talk a little bit about the concept of gender, gender neutral, for example, that, well, we just have to make our policies gender neutral. Uh, the thing is, is gender is everywhere and it's important and we have to address it. And there is no such thing as a gender neutral policy because we are gendered beings, because that is a spectrum. You can't just make, um, make policy and think that it's not going to affect people differently. So to, um, to think that, that that the only way to get through to a company is to talk about their bottom line, that they don't realize that um, the human capital at their companies is just as important as their capital capital uh, is quite shocking sometimes. Um, so, you know, as equity, diversity, and inclusion professionals, we will use the, the, um, the business model in order to try to get attention to it. But it is funny how... There's studies that show that male CEOs will not um, understand the, the peril of their female um, employees until they have a daughter kind of a concept. Like, oh my goodness, what if my daughter gets treated that way? Like, those people didn't matter before you had a daughter? <laughs> so it, it is, it is uh, interesting when you work in this profession to see kind of how things change, how things progress what examples you have to use in order to have people see a different perspective. Um, it, it makes our, our work interesting, but challenging in order to find a way to get to, to, uh, to, to, as Marcy always says, we like to meet people where they're at, but first you have to figure out where they're at mm-hmm. and people are at very different stages. <laughs> On those different stages, another question I had for Marcy and Alicia is where we are with respect to EDI, and gender especially as their expertise, in Canada and here in Alberta, where all of us are based. Well, and this, this is interesting because um, we're a highly educated province. You would think that in a lot of ways we would be ahead in this, and in some ways we are, but um, we also have some pretty deep cultural 
um, traditions here. And actually, there's a really interesting podcast that actually just came out this month. Um, I wrote it down, the information on it. It's called um, Alberta Unbound, and it was put together by an in- the independent senator, um, Paula Simmons. And she looks at the underlying culture of Alberta and how this has helped us, how this has hindered us. And one thing that came out of it, uh, specifically from one researcher, Dr. Jared Wesley, he's a political science scientist from the U of A, but um, his research has shown how our, uh, in general, our province has a masculine undertone, that our persona in itself is masculine. And, and it's kind of funny because if you talk to female STEM professionals, they'd be like, duh, like, <laughs> we could have told you that. Our very femaleness in the industry has been our hindrance. And it, it's been always quite hard to be... Um, y- I tell a story about an engineer who who mentioned at a conference I was at once that, you know, you go to school, you become an engineer, you go into the industry, and then somewhere along the way, you become a female engineer. She goes, I don't know when that happened. I don't call myself a female engineer. It doesn't change the fact that I know engineering that more than anybody else, but it can show you how uh, an industry, a, um, a company in itself, that space can have a gender. And there is a, a um, researcher out of Australia called Dr. Dean LaPlante that looks at this quite a bit. And specifically at the resource sector, which is uh, a dominating force, of course, in Alberta, and uh, how the industry itself is masculine. So we talked about that fitting in, that integration versus inclusion. Uh, if the industry itself is masculine, then there's certain characteristics that you're only going to fit in if you have those certain uh, characteristics or you act a certain way or you are a certain way. And it, and it ties to that, that safetyness that we just talked about, where if you can't speak up, you don't feel safe. If, it's, um, uh, if, if the masculine way is to suck it up and to go out and work hard and not complain, I can see how uh, danger can, can come in that. Um, so it's crazy how our whole province can have a gender, <laughs> but that is, that is it. And even with the economic recovery that's happening right now, uh, the stimulus packages that are being brought forward, so much of the money is going towards uh, the industries where mostly men work. And so, you know, jobs, 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 we need more jobs, but yet we still see bleeding happening within the public sector, which is highly female dominated. So we lost teachers, uh, not just, not just at the, uh, the K to 12 level, but also at the university level. I think the statistics just came out that we've lost over almost 4,000 people at, at our universities here in, in, in the province, which could, could also potentially, I haven't seen the statistics yet, but I have a guess that that's probably pretty female dominant, uh, dominated. So, um, this type of gendering can affect all of our decisions. And if we don't do a GBA plus on our uh, policy creation, on even, even the concept of the, the red tape reduction, um, there's been lots of work on that lately where like, how can we streamline things? Well, there's a reason some of these policies have been put in place and it's to protect people or to protect certain industries or to protect certain parts of society. And if we don't take a, a look at that, before we get rid of some of some of these, um, what's calling red tape, we could actually put people in harm's way. So um, a GBA plus is important on all of our decisions when adding policy and actually also when taking away uh, mm-hmm. policy. 
Yeah. And this gendering that you, that um, Alicia described and this kind of hyper-masculine culture that we have also demonstrate in really interesting and terrible ways with Alberta having one of the highest rates of intimate partner violence in the country, um, one of the largest wage gaps in the country. Um, Calgary has a higher wage gap than Edmonton, which is interesting because Calgary is very oil and gas dominant and really that sector is more so um, prominent here than in Edmonton. Um, So yeah, those are all kind of symptoms of this larger systemic issue. Um, And and Alberta has traditionally been kind of viewed as behind other provinces in terms of gender equality because of these really alarming statistics. Um, and, uh, and for a while, we did have an Alberta Status of Women ministry, which was really positive. Um, and, uh, and now it's kind of, you know, it's a lot smaller and it's grouped in with other ministries and kind of um, declining its, impo- its importance, which is kind of sad to see. Um, but I mean, it's good to give credit as well um, to the current government for creating the, the Human Trafficking Task Force. That's positive and some of the work that and the money they've given to domestic violence shelters and those supports. Um, but, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, there's still a long way to go. Well, and definitely that funding is to an end factor, right? So um, we have to look at the whole progression. We have to look at workplaces and we have yeah. to look at home environments. Um, what we're seeing in the domestic violence and the human trafficking is, a, is, the, is the consequence, but it stems from a bigger culture that just doesn't, yeah. that doesn't exist on its own, right? Like it's great mm-hmm. that we're looking at that, but that's an end member. We have to look at the whole process and uh, right. And um yeah, it's it's. There have been some decisions made lately that I feel were made quickly and without full thought of some of the consequences. Um. Yeah. So without going down a full on rabbit hole on COVID nineteen, because <laughs> I know we don't want to make this episode all about that, but um, but there we are definitely could. <laughs> oh yes, there are so many impacts with COVID nineteen that that aren't being considered, unfortunately. Um, so you know, Alicia talked about GBA plus as well. So just for those that may not be familiar with that, that's gender based analysis plus, and essentially that's a tool um, that uh, the federal government uses, every provincial and territorial government in Canada uses, and now. Um, cities are adopting it and, uh, and so are universities. And it's kind of a really widely accepted positive tool that you can use to apply to your work to determine who, what your impacts are, who may be negatively impacted or who's positively benefiting from it. And, and then it allows you to mitigate those negative impacts. Um, and it looks at way more than just gender. So it's called gender-based analysis plus, but gender is where they recommend you start. But then you look at race, ethnicity, culture, language, geographic location, ability, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so what's nice is the federal government has said that they're applying a GPA plus lens to COVID-19 responses, um, which is positive. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything that the, that analysis reveals is, you know, publicly shared or that they put money to it because there's still a lot of gaps that we're seeing. Um, but for instance, we know that through COVID-19, um, we did a previous episode with the CEO of YWCA Edmonton as well and with an emergency management professional that looked at gender impacts. Um, but essentially, you know, women are getting harder hit 
women typically always get harder hit in disasters because they're primarily responsible for the caregiving, um, you know, the schooling now and all the cleaning now. Um, women are dropping in Alberta and across Canada out of the workforce even more now. Um, women are predominantly the workers on the front lines of this pandemic as healthcare workers, um, but also service sector workers and cashiers and store clerks, um, people that are um, racialized are being further marginalized, lower income people have higher risk of developing it, of COVID. And it's interesting that the stats show more men are dying from COVID, but more women are contracting it and more women are at higher risk of contracting it. So there's so many gendered impacts that shed such a light on where the gaps are in our system and, and give kind of hints and clues as to you know, what we can do to, to better respond to COVID-19. Um, and, and that's, and it's not always followed, right? So most emergency management agencies aren't, con- aren't considering gendered impacts at all. Um, and that's just not part of their process. Um, others, um, are, but, uh, but because they're an emergency and everything's time sensitive, they don't, there's, there's not enough time or that's the excuse or the, the reason I shouldn't say excuse, but the reason why <laughs> that they've been that they've been providing because um, I've contacted many of them and um, and you know and that's not good enough because we're going to see terrible impacts of this and we're not going to be effective in our response if we don't consider you know all of the impacts. Well, and it kind of goes to show you how little we had put into it before, because if fast decisions are being made now Mm -hmm. without taking this into account, it means it's not common practice for us to think about these things, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so then you cause even more harm by quickly making decisions without it being, it's like a muscle, right? Like if you don't use the muscle, you won't be able to, um, to, to, to strengthen it and use it when you need it. So I find that with our lack of doing it in the past, with our lack of um, like the the loss of the Alberta status woman is is for example a huge a huge hit because that is a department that could be quickly looking at some of these things and before decisions are made just to see if there's something being missed. So I feel like there could be easily put resources resources into things on a government side um, that. Um, because we weren't structured that way to begin with, um, we're missing it now. Mm-hmm. And and Alicia and I, with our podcast and the, and the things that we recommend, like we try to be um, nonpartisan as much as possible. And you know, we consider all aspects. And it's not that the previous government did everything right with Alberta status of women because they didn't, and there's still lots of gaps. Um, but at but least as they a, started it. <laughs> and but as an example, is in the last Fort McMurray fires. Yeah. Um, they, because I worked a status of women, I was one of the people hired to create it. Um, but what was interesting is that in the last Fort McMurray fires, they we sent we sent people on shifts to the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, um, twenty four hours a day, to have a physical presence there on the authority of the deputy minister to make sure gendered impacts were considered. And fortunately, changes were made, um, but. It wasn't part of their normal process, so it wasn't sustainable, right? And it was an outsider coming in, kind of ordering people around or shedding light on these impacts and that people were grudgingly following and not fully understanding, right? So that, um, so it wasn't sustainable at all, but there were positive things that came out of it, small little things, right? Like adding um, 
places for breastfeeding and emergency evacuation centers, um, having more domestic violence supports at those evacuation centers, um, having more OBGYNs available and and birth control available, because all of that typically isn't, um, which is quite shocking, right? But um, but yeah, there's we have a long way to go. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the theme of everything I'm saying. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that we have to mention that, that um, not everyone does everything perfectly. And the reason why we're critical right now is because those are the people that are doing the work right now is the current governments in place. And no, um, the previous governments weren't perfect. But like I said, at least they started it. So they started a status woman. That was the first time it ever happened in our in our province. It, we didn't have one before that. But then there was to, one a really long time ago. Oh, really? And then it and and I think it was enacted in like legislation, like it was to be more permanent. Um, but then I forget. Sorry, I should have looked this up maybe before the podcast. But I'll put a note <laughs> in our resource section about it. But then it was disbanded. And, uh, and then over years, it's kind of, you know, fluctuated back and forth and whatnot. But um, as, a, as someone who works in the not-for-profit sector, uh, we've saw a lot of momentum happening um, through granting that was being uh, sent out. And one of the things that we've noticed and we've been quite critical of with um, Alberta Status Women as of late is that they changed how, this is that red tape reduction thing again, for example. So by um, eliminating status women of having their own granting system, for example, they, they put it in with the community grants, the gender-based analysis land was taken away. So before when we could apply for granting to do some of the frontline work, um, there was a consideration looked at gender-based analysis, whereas now there's not. So now um, there's funding that's being given out that's not, you know, that's being given to the frontline groups, the people that want to do the best work they possibly can. It doesn't mean you're not going to miss something. So the put the gender-based analysis on the, the granting dollars uh, can be a way to just to pause and to, to look and to make sure that um, the efforts that we're going to put forward are going to be uh, the best that they can be with the information that we have at the moment and as opposed to just a quick throwing money out there into the public. So that's where we are currently and a bit about EDI and innovation. As you can tell, it's a big topic. This is the tip of the iceberg. If you'd like to hear more, you can check out Exclusion Podcast for the full and extended version of this conversation. You can find Marcy and Alicia at exclusion underscore EDI on Twitter and on exclusion.budsprout.com, as well as on podcatchers everywhere. On this show, we'll also be delving into this topic further and through other lenses in upcoming episodes this and next season. It's one that's too important and too urgent not to. In the meantime, join us for our next episode on mobile batteries, thinking differently globally and creating a company with a vision to address energy poverty. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This episode of Cross Pollination is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. If you choose Park Power, your money stays here. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is important to Park Power's owner, Chris Zawoski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This episode of Cross Pollination is also brought to you by Straight from the CPA's Mouth, a new podcast series created by the CPA Education Foundation and funded by the Heshey CPA Knowledge Center. 
Alberta's chartered professional accountants, CPAs, are experts on a wide range of topics and issues of interest to Albertans. Straight from the CPA's mouth has discussions on topics important to you from leadership skills and achieving career potential to financial literacy and how to make your tax refund bigger. Whether you're a university student, a new Albertan, or a parent, you'll find something of value on this unique podcast. You'll find Straight from the CPA's Mouth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcast, or on the CPA Education Foundation's website at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. Thanks to zapsplat.com for